Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguez, Communications Director at the Foundation. Today's recording is from Sublime Prime Time, our annual event that celebrates Emmy-nominated writers that we present along with the WGA West and Variety. This year, we welcomed an incredible group of writers, including Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski of The People vs. O.J. Simpson, Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg of The Americans, Peter Hike and Alex Gregory from Veep, Marty Noxon and Sarah Gertrude Shapiro from Unreal, Caroline O'Mean from The Simpsons, and Alex Rubens from Key and Peele. On top of such a stellar group of writers, we had as moderator Better Call Saul star Bob Odenkirk, himself an Emmy-winning writer and nominee in the acting category this year. He definitely reminded us that his roots are in comedy and had everyone laughing the entire night. Trust us, it's hilarious. Regardless of who won at the Emmys, we can say that it was a fantastic year for TV, and this panel gave some insight into the process behind crafting some of those memorable episodes. We want to give a special thanks to the staff at the WGA West and Variety for all their hard work at putting together this awesome event. Don't forget to check out our upcoming events at WGFoundation.org. We'll see you at the next one, and until then, enjoy Sublime Primetime. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Can I get a special light over here? Oh, there you go. That's that light I asked for. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Wow. That, thank you for reminding me uh, how old I am. <laughs> There's no way I did all that. But uh, some of it was good. You didn't mention the bad shit that I've done. And I appreciate it. But there's an awful lot of that. That fills most of the time. Um, okay. What a special night we are here for. These are all Emmy-nominated writers from shows of great variety. Uh, between them, they're all very different. Um, so that should make for a lively conversation. And I suppose... It's going to be interesting for some of these people to hear from each other and because they just are working in different endeavors in some ways. Um, it's a great time for TV, and tonight's panel really shows that. I'm lucky to be on a well-written show by uh, some great writers. I wish some of them were here, but, uh, you, know. <laughs> I, you know, look, when you got Albuquerque to fly to and hang out in... <laughs> So some of them are in Albuquerque, is the point. <laughs> but let's get these people up here, and I'm gonna go by least complex writing to most. Now, I don't know, I don't know how this is laid out. But why don't we start with the, the person who may be here to ask me questions. Uh, he's from the wonderful sketch show, the best sketch show of the last, when did Mr. Show end? Uh, Alex Rubens from Key and Peel. Alex, will you please join us? And while you're walking, I'll talk about how great Key and Peel is. The best sketch comedy, you don't stand there, you come up here. The best sketch comedy is a mixture of performance and writing and ideas that are structured well. And that's a very hard thing to do. And a lot of times, what, are you, am I going to get yelled at? Wait, Alex. 
Oh, shoot. All right, get out of here. Anyway, congratulations, Alex, for being nominated. And I think truly the best sketch show since Mr. Show. Next up is a, a woman who's worked in many um, different comedy shows, but has spent quite a while at The Simpsons. And she works there, and I, I think some of you who are writers know that I'm trying to steal Alex G's water. Uh, Carolyn Omina. Come on up, Carolyn. The Simpsons is a new show. It's only on its 500th episode. Hopefully, they'll get a few more. Great to have you. Come join us. I think you're right there. Uh, she wrote a great Halloween episode. And it's the first Halloween episode that wasn't... Um, it wasn't a treehouse, yeah. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? it was a... Omnibus. Okay. <laughs> I use the old term from black and white TV. Omnibus. Uh, next up are some guys who've written an incredibly complex show. It's called The Americans. It just had its fourth season play, and they have written quite a bit of it. Joe Weisberg is coming up. He's the creator of the show, and Joel Fields. Um, this is a kind of writing that is beyond my ken, but I sure appreciate it. Great to have you guys. Thanks for being here. Great. Great. Please find a seat and uh, on the bus. <laughs> Next up, we've got some comedy guys. All right, back to the comedy. <laughs> I mean, I like drama writers, but this is my, this is what I know. They're from Veep. They did the episode Mother. Uh, it was their first episode of Veep. Alex Gregory and Peter Height. Yes. Very funny show that had a complete turnover in its staff this last year and kept the standards just as high. Awesome. Keeping the standards high. There you go, Alex. There's your water. He just licked it a little and rubbed it on his crotch. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, really interesting offbeat show. One of those out on the fringes shows that people uh, respected and noticed that some great writing was going on and uh, a lot of messing around with reality here. Uh, this is a show called Unreal and we've got Marty Noxon and Sarah Gertie Shapiro. Come on, Gertie, get up here. What a cool show this is. Have you seen it? You should watch it. There's too much reality going on. It's like Klingon chess, this show. Did, has anybody made that observation, ladies? That, that it's like Klingon chess? Do you know it? Do you know Klingon chess? But you know it, right? It's a three-layered chess game. Does anyone know how to play Klingon? Or not Klingon, um, what's it called? Uh, Vulcan chess. Vulcan chess? Oh, well, why didn't you say Vul it Vulcan, Vulcan chess. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I mix it up. I don't... I, I love Colin Quinn's line to me when he said, I, I could never watch Star Trek. Too much science. Uh, Romulan checkers is harder. <laughs> and we've got some guys who uh, 
are doing amazing work on TV and have done amazing work in the feature world. Um, their show, The People versus O.J. Simpson, <laughs> American Crime Story, Scott Alexander, Larry Karasuski. And you know their wonderful work in features, Man on the Moon, People versus Larry Flint, Ed Wood. And I have here a movie you did called Roomies from USC. Reality. They were roomies at USC. Um, thank you all for being here. And there is great variety on this panel. So the first thing I'm going to do is just ask each of you to just take one minute. We'll go down the line and talk about the last, the most recent season of your show and any observation you have on that. Just, you can compliment people, say anything about it that you want, just to get us going. So will you guys start? Uh, sure, yeah. We, Veep had been written uh, in England by English writers and filmed in Maryland, and we came on board for the first season where the show had a new showrunner, mostly American writing staff, and the entire show was moved to L.A. And so when we showed up, they won the Emmy. And that was, it is, we were, I, I was telling you, we were fans of the show, so there was a lot of pressure. We didn't want to fuck up the show. And then they won the Emmy, and we really didn't want to fuck up the show. And so that's kind of how we started. And so it was, uh, it was a bit of a pressure cooker, but uh, the showrunner they found was the perfect guy to take over the show. And David so, Mandel. David Mandel, he had the perfect Venn diagram of, he had run Curb, so HBO knew him. He had worked on Seinfeld, so Julia was comfortable with him. And he had majored in politics. And, and he had worked, he had known, like I think his first gig was like with Al Franken or something. So it was, he was the perfect, I think the one guy that could have pulled it off as well as he did. And so that was, that was the, big, uh, the big transition this yeah. year. And to jump in on that, Alex went to high school with Dave Mandel. Oh, wow. So just a heads up, there are a lot of people out in the lobby or writers saying, like, how do you get that break? How, like, how do, how do you get that job? Get a time the machine. Old boy network. Go to Horace Mann. Go to high school with Dave Mandel, and that's, right. that's how you do it. I don't think we, we didn't have scripts, really. It was just like, hey, yeah. you're a friend from high school. It's cool. Yeah. I just, I just gave a lot to the alumni fund, and it was like, they were like, all right, Veep, sure. Well, you guys kept up the uh, standards on and that show, and nobody could tell anything but that it keeps getting better. Cool. Carolyn, you have such a challenge because the show goes on and on and on, yeah. and you have to keep it fresh. I know. When you were saying, the, describe the last season, it's, it's always hard because we, we're always, we write a year ahead, and, and so we're sort of showing season 27, and we're producing season 28, so it's hard for me to remember where the seasons end. But... Uh, you know, we just keep chugging along. We had some really uh, interesting moments. We always do. I, we did an episode last that just recently aired that um, it was Kate McKinnon played a homeless woman, and, and her singing voice was Natalie Maines, and she came to our table read. You know, every, just every once in a while, you have these great little treats, and just yeah. Natalie Maines singing at your table read just was, you know, I'm trying to think of other moments that happened this year. But... Uh, yeah, it was. It's we just keep. Well, you wrote on. a great episode, and it is different. Uh, and it might was it something you sold to everybody? The idea of uh, not doing the three part. 
That, that idea was actually Matt Selman's idea, and uh, I was actually a little worried about it at first, but he, he, I think he came to me mainly because I'm a huge Halloween fan in general. I have a big Halloween party, and, and once we started, we are huge Halloween fans, the whole writing staff, and uh, it, everybody, we never got to do observational humor about Halloween, because The Simpsons never actually experienced Halloween. So once we just started just pitching around ideas, everybody had these great observations from being a parent and all these different types of Halloweens. And our supervising director, Mike Anderson, who doesn't normally direct episodes, he usually just oversees everything, uh, and, and when he does direct, it's usually really special. So he was going to direct it, and also he is even bigger fan of Halloween. The, the animators were super into it. This was really, after 27 seasons, I think this was an episode that everybody was super excited about, and that was really nice to have that happen. Like People were waiting for things to come back from. Well, you the, did a great job. It was really funny, and it was a great story about, as you said, it was kind of about the family instead of so much about... Um, S satirizing, I don't know, horror films or whatever that you usually do on that sp on that episode, which is fun too. Yeah, but it's we, neat we, to do something different. We wanted it to be genuinely scary too. So, and yeah. actually, I think there is some moments where. Well, now Joel and Joe, you're you're here for the fourth season finale. Is the episode that was nominated? So you're in your fourth season, and you're, I imagine you're writing your fifth right now. You have two more. We have two more, and we're halfway through scripts for the fifth season and we start shooting in about two weeks. So what was last season like? Any, anything to characterize the whole season by? Or? Well, I, I, think, I think one thing about last season is we, it, for those who watch the show know, we cashed in on a lot of early investments. Right. And so it was a very fun season to write because there was just a lot of stuff we'd been waiting for. Right. And it was great to get to that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, our show generally moves along at a sort of glacial pace. People have been saying <laughs> to us from the beginning, boy, your show is really a slow burn. And, they, you know, they try to say it like it's not bad. And we're sort of like, yeah, 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 we know. But, you know, the slow burn picked up like a 10%. It's kind of ticked up this season. And I guess that 10% made a difference. This is what I was thinking. Difference. Oh, my God, this show's slower than mine. <laughs> But last season, every four episodes, something happened. So, but you, you guys are at that place in the run of, of that kind of show where, and you, you're signed up for two more, and so you gotta start um, cutting loose here, right? I mean, it's, it's the opposite. We got nothing left, we just slowing it down. <laughs> but isn't it true that at the place you're at, you start to feel like uh, you have maybe almost too much to get to? Not so much. <laughs> it's no, funny, I, I you're right in the middle it, of yours. One season. thing about us is we, it, we tend to take more time moving through story than we expect to. Mm -hmm. uh, so right. maybe right. you're right. right. But, yes. but so far this season is sort of, seems like it's breaking in the right places. Yeah. Well, that was a great episode and a lot, cha things changed, as you point out, in that season and certainly in that episode. So Marty, you, you were, that was your second season, Marty um, and Gertie. Well, we, uh, the episode we're nominated for is actually the pilot of the first season. Oh, interesting. So we interesting. just did our second season, um, which Sarah can speak to more than, than me. But, um, okay. But our first season, I think, um, what was 
unique about it for us was we were doing a show for a network that wasn't really known for dark, weird television. Um, and, you know, we went through a lot of growing pains yeah. even in doing the pilot um, to get the tone right. And, um, and I think it's been really funny because people are, are responding a lot to the fact that we have two female characters who are mostly not nice. That seems to be the, our, our calling card is the, you know, we're the hallmark show for not nice women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and for me, it's my first teleplay. So I actually just wrote and directed a short film and sold it as a show and then met Marty. So um, it's been a wild, wild fucking ride. <laughs> where, where did you write that short film? Were you... I was living um, in my attic in Portland, Oregon. And, okay, well, I want to hear... Well, just take a moment and talk about that short film for a second. Sure. Uh, what it was and... Yeah, um, I um, so I was have been a writer since I was like five. Went to Sarah Lawrence for fiction writing, but when I moved out to LA, got a day job on The Bachelor, um, and actually accidentally signed a contract and ended up working there for a long time, a lot longer than I maybe should have. And um, the resulting kind of breakdown I had involved me throwing all my stuff in my car and driving to Oregon. And then I got to Oregon and really thought about what I wanted to talk about and write about. And for me, it was being a feminist working on The Bachelor was sort of like a vegan working in a slaughterhouse. And so it felt like that's what I had to talk about. And um, I actually wrote that short for three years. I didn't lock myself in my attic for three years. I, was, I had a totally busy life and day job and um, was having sort of trouble getting anyone to take a chance on me in terms of funding the film or casting. And I ended up going to AFI. They have a directing workshop for women. And uh, through that, ended up getting Frances Conroy and Anna Camp and an incredible cast on my short and just made something I was so incredibly proud of. And um, Lifetime was not where I thought I was going to sell the show. So that was a huge surprise, too. There, was, there, there have been a lot of surprises. Yeah, your yeah. show is really yeah. unique and I imagine was a challenging for even you guys to find the rhythm of it and the focus yeah. of it. There's yeah. so many places the, the focus can be. Yeah, and, I think that, um, you know, for us, a, a huge breakthrough was when we met Shiri and then Constance Zimmer because, right. um, you know, I, I worked uh, as a consultant on Mad Men for a couple of seasons and I think that I learned a lot there about the casting an anti-hero and it's true of your character and in and, and Breaking Bad as well. It's, you know, if you have... Um, characters who are really compromised in what they're doing every day, um, you have to have actors who convey a kind of likability and a general, they've got to have some soul, and both of those actresses are so strong that um, we were able to really compromise them. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. We actually, because I, I, I had cast the short and was sort of obsessed with that casting, and then when Shiri walked in the room, it was, I think it was like 35 seconds. We were just, I mean, she just brought something to the character that we yeah. couldn't have even hoped for, which was yeah. so much vulnerability, so. Yeah. And then, of course, Constance is nominated too, and that's you know she's that's been right. she's been uh, incredible, yeah, playing yeah. you know in so many different shows and so many different roles, and and I feel like it's such a great thing to see someone who's such a a good person and a great actress finally have her a moment. It's awesome. Well, that's really interesting. I really do want to hear all of you, especially you guys on the end, about the actors and what they yeah, bring to these parts. And you're the most complex, parts. right? You know, yeah, you you're the most complex. complex. You're the most compl least complex. <laughs> yeah. What's that? Um, he got more complex. He started over there, and then you said... Yeah, but it was the order that we got called up. I'm, I'm least I'm complex. Oh, back to your own joke. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I, didn't hear, I can't hear it because of the echo. It's like Shea Stadium with the Beatles um, up here. All I can hear is Ringo. 
pounding away. <laughs> uh, Alex? Hi. Was you, were you on Key and Peele all? Yeah, all, yeah, the whole, the whole five seasons, yeah. Did you guys have a good last year? Did you know it was your last year when you started? Yeah, uh, well, you know, the, the fourth and fifth season were really one season. They did that thing where they split it in two. Uh, so we wrote it as one big block, and then they released it as two seasons. And I, like, emailed my lawyer. And I'm like, can they do that? Do they have to? Do they have to? Uh, Everybody, uh, they can. every they lawyer can. in town has answered this question yeah. by yeah. now, believe me. Um, but so uh, I get an extra 5% because <laughs> yeah. can't the union sue somebody? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, he said, like, call, like, "Call the guild." No, it, it, really? No, it was, you want the really? <laughs> no, it was fine. That, it was, that was a joke. Don't yeah. ever call the guild. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. have enough trouble. Well, but uh, I remember Jordan. Jordan very early on. I mean, I remember talking to him about about like where, how do you see the show going? And he always. I, I remember as early as it might have even been season one, but certainly season two. I think he was saying like, "Yeah, I feel like three or four seasons is." As well, because because it sort of um, it seems like some of the best sketch shows do s- stop around there, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, "Let's not press our luck, you know. Uh, let's let's quit while we're ahead." So, and you had a great time. Yeah, it was an amazing it was an amazing four seasons of writing. They're and such great performers, those two guys. And yes, it really is a ama- and they're great writers. As yeah, well. I got to. I mean, they're a dream. Like there were one. I would say over the course of the entire uh, s- uh, series, there were w- maybe one or two sketches that I thought were kind of bad. And and then when they came on TV, I was bracing myself for them. And then they were really funny because you can give Jordan and Keegan a piece of shit and they'll make it hilarious. <laughs> They're really um, great. So I was like, oh, we don't matter. Um, <laughs> but but no, um, matter. yeah, yeah. And and Jordan's a great writer. I mean, I know yeah. they both are, but I know yeah, Keegan I, always compliments Jordan. Yeah, he's and I've gotten to work with him on a bunch talent. of stuff myself. That's actually how I got into the show is working with Jordan and um uh and and just all the writers. On Were the you show. in that Dutch improv group with him? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want any Dutch improvisers on this stage. <laughs> I'll be the only Dutch derivative person. Next up, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. The People versus O.J. Simpson, so great. Man, that's a fun show. It's awesome. I couldn't believe it. Of course, like everybody, I haven't watched everything. You can't watch everything that's good. But I did for this. I watched all the shows, and I was just so entertained and surprised and intrigued. Did he do it? Oh, my God. (laughs) No. I mean, uh, you, you guys. Thought about I trying mean, to pull a pull a Tarantino and like you know, have him be convicted at the, the in the episode ten, but it yeah. didn't, didn't happen. What to talk about uh, this? Just your general impressions of this of the season of the show. Just overall, I mean, you must I mean, feel great. It was a feel great. big success. I mean, I think we just we didn't realize people still gave a shit. Really, is what it comes well, down to. Like, know, like we we, we knew that we were really interested, and we thought this was like uh, just a, an amazingly fantastic story that we all lived through. I mean, if you were in we were in L.A. in the in the nineties, um, and um, 
it just, just enough time had gone by to sort of re-examine it. And, you know, we were worried that, that people wouldn't care or that it would be seen as just a kind of a period piece. And just the more research we did and the more we dug into it and having, uh, you know, the horrible events like, you know, the death of Eric Gardner and people like that and the Black Lives Matter happened and all of a sudden it didn't feel like a period piece at all. It really felt like the stuff Johnny Cochran was talking about uh, felt very relevant to what was happening today. And then, you know, as we dug into it, we, the birth of 24-hour media and the gender stuff with Marsha Clark, it all felt like it was you know, uh, really speaking to what was happening now. I mean, when I, when, when the Marshall Clark stuff, I see what happens to Hillary sometimes, and I say it's the exact same thing. Was the, and it's, I can't remember what the credit is, but is Jeffrey Tubin's book, is it kind of based on, or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how did that um, launch this, or, or did it come from another place, and that was the reference for it, or did it really, really sort of, does it represent the book? Um, I, I, I think it represents the attitude of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we, we love Jeff's writing. Uh, Jeff uh, has a total fetish for weird detail and strange factoids, and we, we love that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, particularly strange facts that are sort of in service of character and story. And so we were, there was just tons of, of goodies to circle in the book. Um, I mean, the distinction between the book and the show is, is Jeff was sort of saying he did it. Uh, let's look at why he got off. And, and the show is more, is more like it sure looks like he did it. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. In the first episode, it doesn't feel like you're trying to tease anyone no. at all. Right. That, that maybe well, I think the, the first episode and the last episode, you, it's the, all the evidence points to one guy. It's when you get into the whole murky middle, when you get to an episode like Manna from Heaven, which is episode nine with Mark Furman tapes, all of a sudden you start saying like, wait a second, did they frame a guilty man? I don't know, you know, it's one of those things where the, uh, it, it, it seems very open and shut, uh, but I think what we really try to do is show everybody's point of view. And by showing everyone's point of view, you just see how, like, how murky things are. And I would say that, uh, I wanna hear what you have to say about the the characters that we thought we knew, I mean, there's, that's, that's just gives so much life to the show, is uh, Marsha Clark and Chris Darden and everybody. You know, the, learning about their friendships, their backstories, I mean, seeing the OJ character rant and rave at his friends. These are things we didn't hear about really or understand or see as a dimension of the event when it happened. And it's really intriguing and changes everything. Yeah, it, it almost started having a, a, a let's put on a show, we're gonna be backstage quality, and that everybody in the world had watched the TV show, the Court TV TV show, but we were gonna say, let's go backstage and show what was happening with everybody who was putting on that show every day, and how what was happening in their lives was impacting what we all viewed and it would make us all sort of reevaluate our impressions. And the ways in which they knew each other from their own pasts was... Yeah. Oh, that's oh. crazy. Every, everybody knows everybody. I mean, when you start reading Tubin's book, you're like, wait, so, so Ito is old... Ito knows Johnny, he knows... Who knows Chris, who knows that girlfriend, who knows... It's like everybody was connected because they all go into that same criminal courts building every day of their lives. There were so many connections, we left things out. I mean, uh, Robert Shapiro represented the man who shot Marsha Clark's ex-husband. 
And that's how they knew each other because he represented the person who shot her ex-husband. And it's like literally, that was like, how could we work this in? And it was so, it's even me saying it, so complicated. Do you think that, I mean, sort of, part of the sort of excitement that you get from watching it is you do think you know these people. And so suddenly you're seeing Chris Darden sitting there and he's not on the case. And what, wait, I thought he, when is all right, what happened there? You're, you, because you're using the facts of the real thing to just as a jumping off point. Well, it had to work for two audiences. It had to work for people who knew every single detail, or at least thought they knew every single detail. And so we had to constantly be bringing in new things that they didn't know from all our research. And it had to work for, you know, we both have 20-year-old uh, kids who, you know, all they know OJ from is, you know, kind of that, that chubby guy who was in jail. And so they didn't, they don't really know anything. Uh, uh, and so we had to, like, make sure you told them all the details that would, that would make it interesting to them as well. Yeah. We, we, we had to sort of reinvent OJ for young people and, and we kept referencing our own kids which is, you know, when Larry and I were growing up, OJ was the coolest and OJ was so charismatic and he had that smile and he was in Capricorn One <laughs> and he's in the Towering Inferno and we loved OJ and there were a couple times I grew up in LA where I just, I met OJ I was like, oh my god, he's so cool he's so nice and he signs autographs but now he's that grumpy fat guy eating oatmeal cookies and then out of prison. And, 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 and so for, for the, anybody under the age of 40, we needed to reintroduce that version. Well, now, I want to ask about the Cato Kalin spinoff. <laughs> or at least get the rumor started. Because I would watch that. Well, Cato's so funny because... He really has nothing to do with the case. And so he's so famous that, you know, we, we wound up dropping him from the episodes as he goes along. And, but it was weird because he, everyone just always remembers Cato. I mean, when we first told people that we were doing the show, they'd say, who's playing Cato? It's like, <laughs> you know. So we actually added a line later in, like, I think it's episode six or seven, where someone says, so, uh, like, people are at Pep Boys, like, watching the trial on TV, and they're like, I wish they'd bring Cato back to this show. <laughs> I love that Cato guy. I wish he was on this show more. <laughs> Now, Joel and Joe, your show is based in reality as well. And Joe, you worked for the CIA. Yes, yes? Yes. Really? <laughs> yes, that is true. He can't talk about it. And uh, I suppose there, there are cases from the 80s that are parallel as well. But you couldn't count on people knowing that. I mean, setting it in the 80s was a... Strong choice and a challenging one, I suppose. You know, it's sort of, it's interesting. The whole thing started out when, I'm sure a lot of you saw the story in 2010, a lot of Russian illegals were arrested. And that was sort of the inspiration for the show. Um, but ultimately, it's based on Soviet illegals um, from a much earlier era. And weirdly, there's somewhat of a record about this because a guy named Matrokin who was the KGB officer in charge of the entire KGB archive, spent about, he, he, got a, he got a specific job. He was asked as the man in charge of the archive when the KGB was moving their headquarters to move all the files. And he was given a couple of years to do this. And as he was with his staff moving it, he also secretly copied 
the entire archives onto tiny little note cards and took those tiny note cards every night home and then every weekend out to his dacha. And after he had copied the entire archives, he defected. So incredibly enough, the West ended up with the whole archives of the KGB and eventually it was published. And from this, we know a lot about the Soviet illegals, which otherwise was the most closely held secret of the KGB. And so we know about people like Philip and Elizabeth. They're not exactly like Philip and Elizabeth. They don't murder quite as much. They don't wear quite as many wigs. But there, there, there were quite a few of them all over the world, including the United States. And we were able to base a lot of our show on them. And the relevance of it in what ways do you feel that people's fears, and we're living in an incredibly scared <laughs> country, and which I, I guess is going through a horrible depression. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think it's, everybody doesn't have a great acting job, I know that, but are we really in that much trouble right now? But anyway, when you think about when you think about um, the show and, and people watching it now and their fears about the world and what they don't know, do you have any, any thoughts about that and when you pitched it? Well, it is a, it, it is a different time now. We, we did this episode last season that dealt with the day after. And uh, when we first started talking about it with the production team and the director of the episode, uh, I think he asked, so we're just going to show them sitting and watching the day after. And that's going to be a long sequence. And we said, yeah. And um, we had to talk to some of the younger people on the show about what it, what it meant, the television movies that aired in those days, and what it felt like to live every day truly believing that in a flash, not just a city could be knocked out, but the whole enterprise of humanity could just end. And uh, there was something different about it then. Yeah, yeah, and this episode that I saw, and I guess it's a spoiler, but you should have watched already. <laughs> Tough shit. Where Dylan Baker is poisoned, is like, of course, I immediately thought about that Soviet uh, spy who was poisoned, and are there real poisons like that? <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, it, it, it's a real disease. It, it's yeah, it's a... scary the stuff they have. Uh, we learned a lot about uh, Soviet biological weapons program, a chemical and biological weapons program that ran throughout the Soviet area, where they had a couple of hundred, a couple hundred thousand people working on this program inside the Soviet Union, and yet they managed mostly to keep it secret for decades, which is incredible. Think of that many people and keeping something a secret. It's sort of unbelievable. They had entire towns uh, that were part of this program. And, uh, the, and the things they came up with and that spun out of that program were just, just unbelievable. And the, the fact that offshoots of that are still being used today, like on Litvinenko and other people, it's just crazy. Yeah. And who knows what we do, by the way? I don't know. I hope we Don't we have better things to do? That's what I think I, of when I, I hear I when, I, so. when I go too far down the spy hole. I'm like, come on, let's just stop and I don't know, take up racquetball again. Uh, improv is very popular right now. Let's all get on a team. <laughs> now, when did you quit being a spy, a dirty spy, and become a dirty TV writer? 
Uh, I quit in the mid nineties. All right, well, just the reason you're saying. I also thought racquetball seemed more fun, more innocent. What what uh, got, you were writing, I suppose, while you were spying around. Uh, uh, Thinking I, about I writing? Was, I, I mean, was not writing. I was specifically asked when I joined the CIA, they give you a polygraph exam, and hooked up to all the wires and needles and things sticking on, to you, they specifically said, are you joining the CIA in order to write about it? Uh, yeah. And I... Uh, you know, and I hadn't. By the way, I thought it was a great idea. I was like, I should have thought of that. I could probably make a lot of money off of this one day. <laughs> but uh, I said no, and I passed because that was not well my plan. Done. Well done. Now I'm going to get more to comedy in a second, but I just want to say these two shows, The Americans and Unreal, have layers of reality that you have to try to grasp. But I mean. It, and I think about this with Better Call Saul, too. It's a, I find it hard to believe that there's an audience, that there is, of people who are willing to, to go this far into a show and to watch that closely. And it's, it's a challenge to write. And these girls are writing this show where it's just... There's so many ways to watch it. There's so, everybody's got living in their own universe. There's the fake universe of the TV show... The pressures of that, then the backstage and multiple realities. Are you shocked that you can carry that off on TV and people will watch? No, I think, um, you know, just like these boys, we... Um, these young fellas? Uh, well, I'm 53, so... <laughs> um, we... Um, Oh, my God. Sorry. By the way, the name of my next book is LGBT BBQ Barbecue. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, These fine ladies the, of the night. Um, these vaginas... Um, who also, no, I'm just giving you, um, and now I'm going to apologize. Um, uh, and therein lies the contradiction of Unreal. Um, really, um, <laughs> I think for me, I mean, when I saw Sarah Short, what resonated for me and felt so timely and kind of urgent about this particular show was um, that I'm kind of sick of television that encourages people to be bullies. Um, and there's so much about the ugliness that goes into these fantasies and also the manipulation that goes into making non-actors do scripted material. Um, and then what happens to them after they do it, and they're not actors and they're not prepared for the fallout of you know, having portrayed a character that they have no control over. There's an illusion that's just being peddled. And, um, and then on top of it, the sort of romance genre and the to me the sort of damaging perpetuation of this idea that you know you can meet someone in a company of 13 other women or however many and and really get to know them and fall in love is um it's all part of this to me um Perpetuation. We talked a lot about this of this kind of princess fantasy that some and, and this um, Stockholm syndrome of these women who I, I believe by the end are kind of like, does he love me? Does he love me? Does he love me? And then of course they break up. Through I mean, we have a, as good a reputation. We have a better. We have a better track record. The couple from our first season got engaged. Yeah, <laughs> which is like so st stupid and amazing. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
But I also, I mean, I think that one of the things that Marty and I bonded about right away was that I, my big thing about this is like when women destroy other women, they inevitably destroy themselves. There's just something really cannibalistic about it. And we, um, in sort of defining the visual language of the show, it was important to us too. I think we defined this world that was like the mole people that live in the walls. So it's like, so it's like the characters on Unreal are the mole people that live in the walls. And then there's the butterfly people that live under the puddles of light and live in jewel tones. And the moles come out and eat them. And so that was like, so, so the idea was like, so the idea was like what happened sort of to me when I was working on that show is that I gained a ton of weight. I didn't have a relationship for three years. I lived in a down jacket. I was like covered in crafty goo. Like I just literally became a monster. And I got like, better at better at like just like destroying these prom queens and it was like really the revenge of the nerds behind the scenes because it was all of these girls who were like not dating anybody and getting super fat and skin breaking out and had greasy hair and coming out to just kill them on camera and um so we really really tapped in tapped into that and i think that the other thing is that it's really about sort of um crafting fantasies and crafting this princess fantasy and what happens to the women behind the scenes when they fall for their own bullshit so that was what the first season was about was that even though you think you're immune, really at the end of the day, this like production troll, when a handsome prince says like you were you weren't made for the ordinary life, she was like put me on your jet. So it's I think it's just about the challenges of of what happens to us when we destroy each and other. The guys are I mean the yeah. guys are always so um, they just feel like catalog models who've been you know who have sort of fake millions. I always feel like they make up you know their their wineries and their um, you know we, we did. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, the first time I watched a season. The only time I watched a season, I watched. I started watching. Me like, okay, what is this? It's on television. I got. And by the end, I was like, would Ben pick me? <laughs> and I thought, this is insidious. Like, there's something about this that's pitting women against each other. And the and the Bachelorette is a whole different animal. I mean, it's a whole different yeah. can of worms. But the the girl, you know, trying to trying to be won by the singular guy, just tapped into something really. Um, Yucky, and I think to me the question about reality and the layers. More than anything, I think we wanted people to go, "Oh, it is fake," you know. I mean, just yeah. in case anybody still thought there was any reality to reality television, I we wanted people to know that it's not only fake; it's cruel. So. Yeah, I think that the the question people have is, and in what way is it fake? And you guys are showing that in the show because well, it's kind of yeah. hard to, when you hear about it, you you a reality show, you you understand, right, that it's cut together, but. You guys are showing what what the point of that is, what the point of all that juxtaposition and fake drama and the pressure people are put under. Yeah, I mean, I think another thing that we talked about that's important is that, you know, I feel like when I was there, there was always the refrain of like they knew what they were signing up for, like just right. the, the contestants, like screw them, they knew what they were signing up for. But um, what we felt very strongly about, too, was that it was sort of mandatory that you have compassion for every character on this show. Right. Because it would be very lazy writing to just make it cynical. And um, to sort of paint the girls that go on these shows as caricatures would be, to me, bad. It was bad writing. I mean, we just sort of, we, we, it was really important to us to humanize them and to also have compassion for what they were after. And also, there's yeah. no way that they know what they're signing up and that's for. What I we, mean, yeah. you said to me early yeah. on that the, a lot of the contestants were the, were the prettiest girl from the smallest town. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, they, I think most of them enter thinking, this is a game, I'm going to play the game, and I'm, I'm going to game the game. And it's impossible because they don't really understand what goes into making a television show, nor do they understand that the, the producers are there to trick them and befriend them and be awful. Be their best friends. <laughs> but kind of a fascinating thing that's happened since the show came out is that um, 
through uh, some press, um, a reporter tracked down this girl that I had destroyed, the one that I had had to make the short film about because I felt so bad. <laughs> and I was like, and he, he asked me for her name and I was like, oh my God, it's like I'm a Vietnam vet and it was Napalm. Like I, there were so many of them, I can't remember her name. Because it was just like, it would just be the middle of the night and all these blonde girls and they were crying and I don't know. But I was like, this one, <laughs> this one, I was like, she was an attorney. I think she was Southern because the thing that really got me was that she turned to me and she said, I hope you know you ruined my life. Because she was a litigator, and I had just made her look like really like mentally unstable, and so um, uh, so he actually found her, which was insane. I don't even know how he found her. And uh, and did he give her your address? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then Cosmo ran a great story, like, "Do you forgive Sarah?" Um, and she was she was like, "I don't know which one she was because they all look kind of the same because we're all just, like total production trolls." But um, but um, the funny thing was, you know, it really had impacted her life. She actually lost her job. She had to leave her town. And, um, and her mom had to leave church, and uh, it was really bad, and now she's totally fine. And then um, he tracked down three other people that I had mentioned that I had sort of, sort of done something to, and they were like thriving, and like living like beautiful upper middle class lives with husbands and babies, and like I'm still here freaking out about what I did. So it was sort of interesting. It was interesting to me too. I think it's an important distinction that some people really love working on these shows. Some people really like being on them. It was just very particularly for me. I think that it was very, it was very damaging, I think, um, in terms of like feminism to be working on that show. Now, speaking of feminism, The Simpsons. <laughs> You're the only woman. Yes, I am. How many, 50 guys? 70, 72 there. male uh, writers? <laughs> It, there's about 20. It's not not everybody works every day, but uh, and there was for a while about four years there was another woman, but uh, most of the time it's just me. Boo, <laughs> Boo her! But, but you uh, now it's just me. Uh, no, yay! Um, Your but, episode uh, had a great Lisa story. Yes, I, I, I love that. I you know it's funny because Yardley is always every once in a while she'll go. Why does nothing ever work out for Lisa? And, and I, 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 we were talking about it, and I, I realized, like, you know, I think, I think that Yard, I think Lisa is the one that most of the guys relate to. Like, our, so that, that's the main thing is I'm not that feminine, and all the guys are kind of girly. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm, that's not true at all. Uh, but I do think that Lisa represents most of our writers are really like smarty pants guys yeah. that never, nobody quite understood them and they just kind of, you know, they, they had all the answers but nobody wanted to hear it. And, and uh, I think that's, I think Lisa is who they most relate to. And, and once she realized that, then she was like, okay, she didn't mind that nothing works out for Lisa now. But, uh, but they're all very protective of their characters. And, well, that was a great... Now, she goes to, like... Do you want to talk about that story for a second? Yeah. She oh, goes to, like, a universal, like... Horror Nights. Horror Nights thing. We actually... I, I had to research that, and that is genuinely horrifying. If you, if you go to Universal... Because you, you go, and people are jumping out at well, you. Well, the and horrifying thing is that if you're a dad, it's your daughter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yeah. the worst possible thing. It's night. People are... 
attacking each other and that they're getting paid to attack it was your Mike, daughter? <laughs> this, this was full of a lot of stories from a lot of people. Mike Scully had a story of going to Universal Horror Nights, which is very expensive. And then like as yeah. soon as they got in, because the kids had all begged, and as soon as they got in, the kids were like, we want to go home. And he's like, come on, let's give it another shot because it's a lot of money. And, uh, but uh, so Homer has a moment like that. Yeah, it was great. But uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it was, there was a moment when I got, there was like these walking dead people with chainsaws and I ran away from them and I got cornered and then they were like, three of them were, they were gleefully laughing, like, we got one! And it, uh, so it was tremendous. And then as you walk out you, to go to like City Walk, I still was sure somebody was going to jump oh, out at me. But, so yeah, it really is. Got you. Now you guys on Veep, the, you were talking about it briefly in the hellos, but you had an incredible year because it was such a, it was a complete changeover of staff. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and you want to talk about that for a second or I, I want to also talk about actors and how they inspire a moment or even a bit of story, and some people brought that up earlier. Um, the ladies down there brought it up. Do you, do you want to talk about your amazing cast with so many hilarious uh, performers and characters? Everybody's funny on the show. Yeah, everyone, everyone's funny, and uh, it's, it's also amazing to watch how much they care about everything and how tirelessly they work on everything, yeah. like especially you know, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tony Hale, e even like little bits of physical ballet, they will work that stuff out. And after her takes are done, Julia will come by the monitors and watch other people's performances and stuff. In her sweats. Yeah. And just pitch better jokes than we've spent months writing. It, it's intimidating. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, as, as far as, as the, the input, like we do rehearsals and sometimes like some of the best bits come out even trying to figure out camera blocking working in a, in like a, a conference room or something that has nothing to do with the deep stage. improv sessions and, yeah. and, and yeah. just kind of playing around with it and, and bringing them in because they're all some of the best improv yeah, comedians yeah. we just say here's the scene we wrote make it a lot better our name will be on it so it's like cheating we win right. <laughs> just yeah. help us guys yeah now have you i'm i'm sure that all the political world loves veep they love being made fun of whatever they just like that somebody's talking about them right on yeah. some in some capacity right yeah but it is interesting because like you know un unreal and, it, and it, as the guys were saying with oj it's like a lot of behind the scenes there's this kind of voyeuristic thrill that people right. feel like nothing they're actually watching on tv is real there's always something more interesting happening and you know from larry sanders and stuff yeah it was like the tv the actual talk shows kind of were boring it was you had the sense boy i'd like to see it was happening so i think for Veep, it's the sense of, you know, right now it's also, before 2016, was also carefully managed that people wanted to see what was going on behind. And now no. the show looks tame and not particularly yeah, outrageous. I, yeah. <laughs> like, we're yeah. not even keeping up. Now, what about the OJ uh, people? Have you heard from any of them uh, about... The, the real people? Yeah, the real people. Uh, we... We've, we've done a lot of movies based on true life people yeah. and a lot of times we, we do just tons of research in terms of meeting the real people and, and interviewing and spending so much time with them. On this particular project we chose not to meet anyone. 
uh, we decided that there was so much information out there. Everyone had written at least one book, sometimes three books. Uh, we had this thousands of pages of court transcripts. All you know. So we really we. We felt that once you started meeting people, you would develop a bias for them. And there are some people who are not alive, some people who are alive, and, and we just felt that we, we had our, our, our take on what these characters were. Now, since then, uh, uh, like mid-shoot, mid I'd say like episode five or six, Sarah reached out to Marsha Clark. And we, we got to know Marsha Clark a little bit, uh, and that was nice. And, but Darden, we've not met. We've not met Shapiro. We haven't really met... Uh, uh, we haven't really met many of the people at all. And what about a a casting or the actors? Did they alter anything as you cast it, as you found them? Did they alter the story at all? Then, because there's I mean, inspired performances and amazing whole people, and they're also having a great time, it seems. I mean, we thought we had it all worked out, and we had our, our Bible. Uh, I will, I will give points to uh, David Schwimmer, uh, who I, I was really lobbying for uh, to cast Ms. Kardashian. And we met with David, and he's very serious, and he, he's done a lot of directing, and, and he's, he, he's, he's, he's approaching it very intelligently. And, and he was sort of coming at us, challenging us, saying, well, what do you have for me? And sort of like, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm the friend, and I'm loyal, and all that, but... What else? You know, Marsha Clark, she's going to have that, all that stuff, and Chris Dart, and oh my God, what happens with Johnny? I mean, why should I sign up for this thing that's going to shoot for six fucking months? <laughs> and I'm going to have to sit in that courtroom. Every day. And saying. Kardashian doesn't get to talk in the courtroom. Right. You know, so what do you, what do you, what do you got planned? And, and it was really kind of prov provoking us, and then we went back and was like, okay, well, We'll, we'll, we'll call you back. We'll tell you. <laughs> you know, and, and it really pushed us to, just to do a lot more with the Kardashian arc in, in terms of uh, sort of like him being the moral compass and him being the one character who's completely selfless and then comes to regret what he's gotten into. And it's and it just sort of hanging on him harder and harder until by the end he's just counting the moments until he can walk off uh, and not be OJ's friend anymore. And, 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 and we sort of look, we looked at the, the moment that's on YouTube, which is the moment of the verdict, where he's standing next to OJ, and when it's, it, when it's not guilty, you see Kardashian's face fall. And we thought, wow, he stuck with him for that whole year, but he didn't want to be there. And um, so I, I think we, we made much more of a meal out of Kardashian's turmoil than we would have if David hadn't provoked us during the casting. And the other thing I would say that that the uh, the Marsha Clark Chris Darden you know did they or didn't they was always baked into our scripts. However, the chemistry between Sarah and and Sterling K Brown not, not uh, kiss. Well, that's the thing. Oh that, that's my, God. my my favorite thing anyone wrote about the show this year was uh, they're like. The last thing I thought I'd be yelling at my TV set when I was watching the OJ show was, just kiss her! Kiss her! <laughs> and so that was, that was, that's because that, they, that moment was so beautiful. I feel like if the real Chris Darden is single, he's really getting some right now. Like, you know. Um, just an observation. But, 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 that, but actually, this is a room full of writers. That, that I think this is a good lesson in that both Marsha Clark and Chris Darden stubbornly refused to admit 
they had anything going on. So they, they, er- both, they both wrote books. They both wrote books, and they go right to that edge, and they don't tell you, and they won't tell you. They both walk up to the door in the hotel yeah. room in San Francisco, and then the chapter ends. Yeah. And so for us, we're like, fine, that's going to be it. That's going to be... We're going to make it about them not kissing. We're going to make that be the, the crux of... Because the, they, won't, they, they, they won't go out and say it, so we can't just make it up. But that's going to be the moment, the moment they don't kiss. And then in the show, it happens to fall right before Chris decides to pull out the glove. <laughs> so it's set up and payoff. You know? He's a man. So now you guys are working from a story that happened, and you're probably writing the whole thing before it starts shooting, right? Uh, we had a lot of work. We had probably had like six, seven scripts done before they, we started shooting. But we had, <laughs> we had everything. We had more scripts finished before we started shooting than after we started shooting. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it went yeah. backwards. Yeah. Now, Joe and Joel, you guys, where you're at in your show, you know where it's going at this point, like all the way to the end, right? Yeah, we have, we have an ending. I mean, we have sort of four versions of the same ending. I don't know which one we'll pick. But. And so... And this season, you were finding it still. Well, I guess no, you always that, are on some level, but well, then both things are simultaneously true. So for a right. long time, we've known what we're moving towards in terms of the end of the show, and really, I, I'd say most of the storylines are storylines we hatched early on and broke early on, and we tend to write very far ahead with this very big document uh, that. Was it season two we started to write? And really by season three, we had all the storylines in this one big document. And when it came time to break another episode, we would just turn to what we called the master document and said, well, what, what part of this do we want to tell next? And, and I'd say probably 75% of that story we broke in some form or another held. And then 25% we get really surprised by. But of course, you don't know which is going to be which, yeah, yeah. and that's part of the fun of it. And Marty and Gertie, you guys, are, where you're at after the first season, where were you at as far as the run of a show? Um, we got picked up, I don't know, we're, we just opened the room for season three a couple, like a week and a half ago, um, and I think we had, um, like, I don't actually remember when we got picked up for two, but the thing with two, it was like really interesting because I think the first season we were kind of like a punk band. Like we were kind of in the garage and they were like, hope something cool comes out. <laughs> and then and then it aired and, and um, it, I think it got a lot more attention than anybody expected. And um, so that meant going into season two, we had a lot more eyeballs on us. And I sort of remember getting the question very pointedly. We were doing a panel with the network and got a very pointed question about like, how are you going to outdo yourself? Um, and so there was a lot of that, but I think I'm really proud of, the, of how we sort of stayed inside the characters and and kept going with the story that we always wanted to tell, which was about the struggle for the main character's soul. Um, and we have a director on the show, Peter O'Fallon, who's really been passionate about advocating for that too and the storytelling. And so really keeping the um, the story core of the show about this character moving through the world. And so that's that's what we're doing in season three too. It's sort of the next step in Rachel's battle for her soul. And everybody, let's just go down the line. I know you have, most of you have a number of people nominated for Emmys from the show. So do you just want to talk about who else is nominated from your show and the work they did this year? Um, we have I mean, 22 nominations, so. Well, you, you don't have to name them all. 
I mean, but, but any you want to mention anybody? I mean, for actors, our, our entire writing staff got nominated, which is yeah. really cool. So it's it's us and it's Divi Vicentes and it's Joe Robert yeah. Cole. What was super nice about it all was that it really was a case of no person being left behind. And we're all three of our directors got nominated, all three of our editors got nominated, all three of the writing people got Straight. nominated. So it was and and you know three supporting actors. You know, two actors, the an actor. You know, so I mean, we we won sound editing. We did win sound editing already. We won hair already. You don't. What are they? Which actors? Uh, uh, I love uh, this. Writers don't know this. John Travolta, <laughs> David Schwimmer, Sterling K. Brown, Sarah Paulson. Oh, what's what? What gender did I? I got to flip genders. Uh, Courtney Vance. And Cuba. And Cuba Gooding Jr. Jr. Yeah, that's six. Alex. What are the other nominations? Well, you're we just uh, we just lost our third consecutive writing uh, Emmy at the Schmemmies last weekend. Um, think, yeah, and uh, and um, Keegan, I, right? Yeah, Keegan, and the the uh, they, they just won for uh, makeup um, uh, also last weekend, yeah. which was well deserved. Um, and uh, and I don't know, it's season five. I don't so remember. You'll, you'll be rooting for Keegan, <laughs> Gertie. Um, Constance Zimmer is nominated um, in Supporting Actress category, and I was going to say on that front that she really has helped define that character, and I think that there's no way we could have done what we have done um, without her. There was no one else who could have done it, so we're very grateful. Joe? Matthew and Carrie are both nominated. You know, yes. They are... Fantastic. If you're fans of the show, um, yeah, they're amazing. geniuses. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're unbelievable, and they're incredible together. And, uh, I mean, we're always talking about the fact that no matter what scene we write for them, they sort of do something with it that we hadn't expected or anticipated or seen in, in any way. They're really just incredible. You talked about process with actors, and there's, it's really remarkable. We have, it's a, it's a wonderful family on our show, and uh, we know you had that on Breaking Bad, and I'm sure it's the same way on, yeah. on the new one. And there's a, there's a particular... We call it an alchemy, particularly with Matthew and Carrie, because sometimes we communicate a lot about what's inside scenes. Sometimes we talk really around character stuff, but really more often than not, we'll we'll turn over scenes and talk with the director very specifically. We'll talk somewhat elliptically with them, but they will go off and then deliver what's better than the version of the scene we had in our heads, which is a surprise, a surprise that captures something underneath it that we didn't expect and it's just it's great and it's wonderful to see them it's finally great cast. what about dylan was well, he let's not nominated? forget margo who won also last weekend again and dylan hasn't been nominated for the show yet no well he's dead now yeah, he's, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> carolyn yeah Carolyn, what other nominations did you guys have this year um this and year we were other... also nominated for sound editing which i believe we didn't we didn't when we 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 also lost it. Uh, we were on the B team Emmys, well, but you know. There's always the next. But oh, Hank Azaria. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hank Azaria did win for. I'm just plugging him uh, for Ray Donovan, but uh, you know. That's super cool. Peter, what about you guys? Deep you a... got 17 nominations, oh, and then they took one away, and they put them. They 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 knocked us down to 16. Peter McNichol, who's great on the show. He was a guest actor, and then we, there was one scene inserted in episode nine, and it was after he'd been submitted as a guest actor, and I guess that took his threshold over the point of a guest actor to a supporting actor. And so he found out he was nominated, he was excited, and they called him, ooh, you're, 
You're, you're not going to get it. So I'm Peter, sorry, what is this? They took his nomination away because he was a guest actor. Did he actor. acted too much? Yeah, he yeah. did. He did five. He appeared in five of the you ten episodes. You did seven actings. Right. Yeah. And that's too, mu- did, too, too many actings. He did too many actings. Of the thing. They took it away from him. And then the guy who then was, you know, the sixth on the list who moved up to five was oh. Peter Scolari, who won. For girls, and he's great. Oh, yeah. So congratulations so for, to yeah, girls and, and Peter Scolari. Yeah. Great job. We also had uh, Martin Mull in the same category. Fantastic. We had uh, Julie so Louis-Dreyfus, uh, Tony Hale, Anna Klumski, Matt Walsh. Wow. Um, Big pile of actor of uh, writers and editors that no one really cares about. Right? Right. The rest, right. the rest of us. No, but but those are the actors uh, that people care about. Our boss is nominated against us. Yeah, Dave Mendel's nominated wow. for writing, directing, and, and producing. So. Right. He's, well, he's under a lot of pressure on yeah, Sunday. He doesn't, no. He'll be great. <laughs> it's, um, you guys could win it. You guys could win it, I think. All right, let's open it up to some questions. We have a few more minutes. And I'm sorry, I should have announced it. There's two microphones there if you have a question. Uh, in the meantime, real quick, because there's some young writers here, who gave you your first break as a writer? Starting down there. Uh, my first break as a writer was actually local television. There was a, um, a TV station, I'm from South Bend, Indiana, and there was a, uh, was very unusual, it was a sketch comedy show in the 70s called Beyond Our Control, which was basically a Saturday Night Live for uh, young people that actually started before Saturday Night Live or Second City, and, uh, you know, uh, and it was, we were doing a, a half-hour TV show while I was in high school, so it was really a cool thing, and that taught me how to finish and tell jokes and get things done, and, um, a bunch of writers came out of that. Uh, guys from my high school. Where, uh, guy wrote Heather's, Dan Waters. Uh, guy wrote uh, Adventures in Babysitting. Person who invented Blues Clues. Uh, uh, um, I didn't know that. Uh, Dean Norris. Wow. Dean Norris from Breaking Bad was on that show. With Seriously? Me. Amazing. Alex, what about you? Uh, Jordan Peele gave me my, my break. We, we, were, we were hanging out and talking about gremlins and uh, <laughs> we met him through a friend and, and then we ended up starting to write together because we got excited about the stupid shit that we both like. Uh, Scott, you... Um, we almost got our big break from someone different. Uh, Larry and I wrote a script in college and then uh, a, a good friend of ours uh, was interning for these two producers, these, these, these two women, and they were really f- big fans of our script and they were giving us notes and we kept saying, do you want to option it, you want to option it. And they're like, no, 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 hang on, hang on. But we, we got more notes for you, more notes for you, but they didn't give us money. No, no, no. And then, and then they, they sent over a deli platter one night to like encourage us to finish their free rewrite. And then I, I know at one point I said, I had heard somewhere that you can option a script for a dollar. And I said, well, do it for a dollar. And they're like, no, 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 hang on, hang on. Well, they got Jesus. <laughs> It won't give us a buck. And so right after that, we uh, signed with ICM and we told ICM about these, age, about these producers and ICM said, have they paid you? We said, no, they wouldn't give us the dollar. And ICM said, fuck them. And then sold it to 20th Century Fox for a lot of money. That's so, a weird story. Yeah. So 20th gave you the break. Tw- 20th Century Fox, thank you. Gertie, who would you say? Um, pretty much Marty Knoxon. <laughs> Marty Knoxon. Marty, did you see the short yeah. film? Uh, yeah. how, how did you yeah. see it? Um, uh, Nina Lederman, who was um, uh, running Lifetime at, at the time, uh, 
kept asking if I would come to her office. She wouldn't send the sure, DVD yeah. to my house because she wanted to like, I, it was like being with a used car salesman. She was like, so what do you think? <laughs> you were she's, writing Girlfriend's Guide to... I was writing Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, which had just gotten picked up for its first season. So I was, I was reluctant to come and talk about it, but um, not because I, it didn't sound interesting, but once I saw the short, I remember turning to her and going, oh shit. Because <laughs> I felt like, well, we have to do this. Um, and then Sarah and I met, and we, you know, we dressed like salt and pepper shakers. Yeah, so it happens all the time. <laughs> but we I always I, dress in the same colors, yeah. and I thought, well, that means we're going to work well together. Totally so. Dustin. I should say Nina had bought. She had yes. bought the show already. So it was it was Nina Lederman took an enormous chance on me. Um, she uh, kind of bought it in the room, and it was the first television pitch of my life. So it was wow. it was all a little crazy. Um, and she and I quickly got pretty overwhelmed because I had written a short that was a 20-minute scene. And it was like, prick. And Nina has this incredible thing she said to me. I said, don't you think I should get a co-writer? And she goes, I'll show you how to do it. It's no big deal. And I was like, really? And she said, she said, oh, yeah, it's just, like, it's just like your short, just a few less awkward pauses, which turns out to not be true. It's a little more complicated than that. And so I remember getting pretty overwhelmed. And um, the first time I went over to Marty's house, she gave me cookies and we played with her puppy. And she was like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> Marty, what about you as far as a break? I, I mean, I'd say that my biggest break was um, I, got, I finally got good representation and I actually got an offer. I met on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and... Um, and Thank you. And um, and it wasn't picked up yet. And I also got an offer from, you know, I'd never had a, a staff job before. And I got an offer on a show called The Pretender about a guy who pretended to do stuff, um, <laughs> like fly planes. And, um, and uh, I got a call at my office. I was an assistant for a lot of years. And it was Joss Sweden. And um, he goes, Marty Noxon. I said, yeah. He goes, you know, we're making you an offer, and I hear you're taking the pretender. And I said, yeah, well, you know, it's on the air. And, da, da, da. and he said, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. And, you know, he convinced me to come over there. And, um, I mean, he's a, he's, he's a guy who felt really strongly about his show, and he said, I think I'm going to make you a better writer. And, and he did. So, um, and he's, a, you know, he's been a mentor to me and still is. He's a great guy. Joe? Um, I was uh, I was um, teaching high school and going to grad school at night, and then you were spying. Also spying. You're being, you're being a creepy guy. That was my cover. <laughs> no, this was year, years after that, and uh, I was going to grad school at night and writing novels later at night. And I was living in a very small apartment in New York. And I was sitting one day. I had this little bathroom that I had converted into an office. This is a New York story. I don't think most of you would understand this, but I had ripped out the toilet. And, and put in shelves and a little chair. It was, it was really about this big, and that was my office. And I was sitting there one day, and the phone rang, uh, and it was uh, Joe Cohen from CAA. And I really didn't know what CAA was at, at that point. And uh, he said, hi, this is Joe Cohen, and I read your, your spy novel. Have you ever thought about writing for television? And I was like, I don't know, not really. And uh, that was sort of the beginning. He, wow. You just got your book in a bookstore, or...? He got it from another, I don't know, actually. I'm still not really wow. sure. Yeah. It's amazing. I got Joel? it from a spy. Uh, <laughs> Find out. Bug somebody. Find out. Joel? Uh, those, are all, those are all great stories, and it strikes me that as a writer, I should have a good story for this, for my big break, but I don't, I don't have I could write one. But if I have to be, but since our show is somewhat about being truthful, even though it's all about people who lie, uh, I guess I should be honest here. Um, I, like everybody here, I'm sure, wrote 
my whole life, and uh, I, I wrote plays, and, um, but I had been working in the TV movie world and got to a moment in time where I decided I wanted to be writing and I wanted to be writing TV drama. And uh, I wrote some scripts. I got, a, uh, I got a script, I got a job on a show, but I think the first real break was uh, I went into the office of an executive at CBS and pitched my first pilot. And I got halfway through the pitch and he took a call. <laughs> he walked over to his desk, he took a call, and, uh, and then he, he started talking about something executive-like that seemed important, and then he looked over at me, and he covered the phone, and he said, oh, it's great, we're doing it. <laughs> and, and so then uh, I, I, I and, uh, and a friend of mine uh, wrote the pilot, and it was picked up, and I think that was, that was a big break for me. That's great. Carolyn? Um. Yeah, let's hear it for that yeah, kick-ass story. I totally made it up just now. <laughs> um, I was doing a lot of uh, sketch comedy and improv, and uh, I was working, my day job was working in a literary agency. I worked for an uh, agent, Rob Rothman, and I never really told him what I was doing. I don't know why, I just felt like it would be too pushy. And uh, this woman, Nancy Steen, who um, had been on Night Court and a few other shows, she was doing a new show and she'd called, and she'd come to our sketch shows a couple of times and had complimented my sketches. And uh, she called looking for writers and I was like, oh, hi, Nancy, it's Carolyn. And she, she told Rob, you know, you, your assistant writes. And he, being an agent, said, well, you should hire her. And, uh, <laughs> and then uh, she said, well, tell her to write a spec script. And so he came out and he goes, well, you have to write a spec script. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, he said, yeah. He's, He's like, you look a little sick. Maybe you need to take the next two days off. And I was not knowing then that I was like, yeah, two days is a good long time to write a script. And I, uh, I, I took two days off and I wrote a script. I had been, uh, also the other thing though was because I was working in a literary agency and we represented David Merkin and he had a show called Get a Life at the time. And a I lot was of people, a writer on that show. Oh, you were? Yeah. I love that show. And you know, the, the people always said write a spec that's really well known or a big hit and I, you probably wouldn't have done a Get a Life. But I knew being David Merkin's assistant to the agent. I knew that a lot of people in the industry really loved that show. People would always ask for the tapes and stuff. So I wrote a spec, Get a Life. And um, I got on, so Nancy hired me and Rob became my agent. And uh, <laughs> that spec, Get a Life, that I wrote in very short, uh, it, it, it has served me well because people were always like, Get a Life, I love that show. People always really like it. We, yeah, we, uh, we've known each other since college. And we were working at the shitty version of Spy Magazine. It was sort of the zombified, raised, risen from the dead version. And we knew that we really had to get the hell out of magazines. And so at the time, I was dating a girl whose twin sister was on the desk of Bart Walker at ICM, who's like an indie feature agent. And so I gave her a friend spec. And he's like, what the hell am I going to do with this? And so he sent it out to ICM LA like Nancy Josephson, she's like, I'm not gonna read this. And so she gave it to Richard Weitz, who was at the time the youngest agent at ICM. And uh, he read it and he called us up for a meeting and he was so 
delightfully inexperienced and he was just like can i bring my brother and we're like no you can't bring your brother and then the, the waitress like dumped like beer on him and stuff and everything and we had had a meeting with another agent who was very sort of professional and was like took us to tribeca grill and was like i can't get you a job but i can get your stuff near the top of the pile and Richard Weiss goes, ah, oh, job, I'll get you a fucking job. What do you want? What job you want? And so it was like, we want that crazy guy. We don't want the sane guy. I, I can give a very measured approach as to why we shouldn't be near the top of the pile. I want the lunatic who promises things he can't deliver. But he's, so you're voting the, for he's Trump. still our agent and has delivered everything. That was, that was Weiss. Weiss was the best. And he, he's like, you're in New York. I got to get John Letterman. We're like, that. That's my life's dream is to work for Dave Letterman. Growing up for comedy writers of our era was a thing like I remember my house would be asleep and I'd be in the kitchen and my mom had this little TV she would watch while doing dishes. And I would sit there from like 1230 to 1.30 and just watch Dave every night just waiting. And so then when Richard White's like, I, I can get you a meeting on Letterman, I can get you on this show. We're like, oh my God, yeah. And that was our first job. We got a meeting and we got to write for Dave. But I would say we, we moved out here to work on Larry Sanders and that was, Gary was really our our mentor as far as writing half-hour comedies and learning that art form, that was Gary Shandling. Great man. Great man. Well, we don't have time for all these, but if you go fast, we'll get a couple of them. Go ahead. Hi. Quick question um, for the Unreal writers. Um, I was hoping you could talk really quick about Jeremy's character, because he changed so much from season one to season two, and with all the stuff that went down in season two, I'm really curious about what's going to happen with him in season three. Will he be redeemed? What's going on? Um, Jeremy's, Jeremy's going through a lot of stuff right now in the, in the time between seasons. Um, Chet may, may or may not have taken him under his wing, and uh, we have a lot of hope for Jeremy. Thank you. Go ahead. Over here. Uh, I have a question for Joe Weisberg. Um, uh, what I, I love everything about the show, by the way, but um, one of the things that really sticks out to me like, is uh, the realism in a lot of the tradecraft, which you know, like, is something I really crave in like, the spook genre. Um, what are, one, of the, one of the most like, uh, outstanding scenes for you that you feel is one of the most that really played out well on screen and like, just in writing that you think really exemplified the tradecraft like, in, in intelligence or anything? Well, I, I, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. I was really determined to do the tradecraft right, and, and in fact felt that my old friends from the CIA were going to be watching. And if it wasn't done right, they were going to send me a lot of nasty emails. So, so I, well, I didn't think they'd kill me, but I thought I'd be criticized. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 was, I was coming into this, and I'll, I'll just, I guess the thing I'll mention is the, is the counter-surveillance. This is something we, we spent a lot of time on. I sat down with Joel. Joel's been, you know, doing production for you know, I'm going to say 50 years. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but his whole career, and I was very new to production when we started this show. So I sat down with Joel, and I explained how counter-surveillance works. And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> he was like, if you want to film that, that's going to take the whole week that we have to shoot the episode. So we, we put our heads together and figured out what's the most realistic version of it we can show, but that maybe we could shoot in half a day or a day. And we figured out together how, and with our directors, how we could show it in a way that looked I thought truer than anything that I'd ever seen in television or movies, but that wouldn't basically break the bank. And I, I was something I'm really happy with how it came out. Yeah, and I'll say it's it's been a it's been a rewarding challenge, but it's a real challenge because really good tradecraft is undetected, and so you basically have to completely hide it from the audience. But the temptation is always to tell your story, and one thing that 
I think has been a guide to us in the later seasons of the show is we've sort of let go of telling the story in a strange way and focused on telling the characters and telling the characters' story. And we feel like if the audience gets what the characters are going through in their journey, then the plot stuff is okay, that the audience will catch up to it. So thank, thanks, thank for, thanks for not getting lost in the tradecraft, but enjoying <laughs> it. Over here. Uh, you have a question for Sarah. Um, you, you guys were talking about the layers of reality on the show, and I feel like to especially very savvy people watching the show, there's an, another layer on top of all that, which is like you have the ability to incorporate aspects of making the show into the show. And I think we, you know, it seemed like we saw that a little bit in the second season. Like you literally have Rachel saying, "I'm ready to be the showrunner. Please let me be the showrunner." And I just wonder, like, how, how tempting is it to do that? And like, are you already assuming that people are going to read that into the show? Yeah, you know, one, one really lucky thing about it was I think that um, because the genre is so established and because people are sort of fascinated by behind-the-scenes worlds, um, writing-wise, we found that there were a lot of shortcuts we could take. Like, we, I think initially when we were trying to describe how a control room works and how a reality director directs multicam and all of this stuff, we found a lot of efficiencies. And sort of once we cracked that in the pilot, it became we became sort of more life in moving through the world. Like, it, it's become a lot easier to have, like that people assume that a walkie goes into an earbud. But part of that is like, you know, just craft-wise it's been complicated because we've had to figure out how to slug the stuff that's on the monitors while the actors are performing it, but there's other action going on in the monitors and there's something in their earpiece. And what I sort of love about that is that's how it feels to be on those sets. It's fuck it's really chaotic. Like when I used to I used to go home and having had a walkie in one ear squawking production all night with an IFB in the other ear squawking um, people's microphones and two phones on my belt and just feel like a cyborg. And so part of building that world out was sort of figuring out how to, how to script that chaos. I'm going to interject a question, Scott and Larry. This was, <clears throat> let me get the title right. Um, where does, what is American Crime Story? What, what are those words? <laughs> refer to so the people versus oj simpson is this a series they're trying to start called american yes, it's, a, it's an anthology show uh we wrote were you were you invited to write more or uh we were but we were not doing we're producing the second season but we're not oh, writing somebody um, else okay. the initially started as a single one-off we 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 wrote it was a miniseries it was a miniseries right. uh, and we wrote uh you know we did a bible and we uh we were doing scripts and and uh Late into the process, uh, Ryan Murphy approached us and about making it as a a, 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 a multi-season thing. Yeah. yeah, and are you are you somebody's writing this? Yes, they're writing thing? it right now. They're writing as. And we what speak. is the? Uh, it's about Hurricane Katrina. We are doing a similar kind. We're doing a, a, our own semi sequel, which is we're uh, taking Jeffrey Bo Tubin's new book about the Patricia Hearst kidnapping. Right. We're we're writing that as a film, so. Our, and Kato Kalin will be in, in uh, he'll be Hurricane. In he'll be in New Orleans, <laughs> asleep in a cozy cottage. <laughs> what well, did you hear, Kato? Outside or something? I heard some I bumping. <laughs> Why is it all wet out here? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, go ahead. All right, so I have just more of a general question. Anyone can answer this. If there was a time, maybe towards the beginning of your career, where you were just breaking in, and you were sitting in a writer's room, and ideas are getting pitched around, and you have nothing, and you're thinking... Every day. <laughs> and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. What got you out of that writer's block funk and led you to keep going and keep pursuing your dream? I got fired. <laughs> 
Did that inspire you, Marty? I, I think that, you know, um, I, I give advice to people who go into writer's rooms. You know, you have a big room, at least in comedy, so that people can space out and have off days. Um, and I think you should just be okay with that. What's worse, what you should not do is sometimes people take on like, I'm gonna be the grammar Nazi, or I'm gonna, just because they feel like they wanna say something, or I'm gonna start like saying, no, nah, I don't think so to other people's ideas, just because they wanna hear their voice. And I, I think it's, it's best to just relax and wait till you actually, and actually I, <laughs> I remember writing with a friend of mine that he was, he's a really funny guy, and he's here today though, but he's a really funny guy, and we were writing together, we'd done improv, and it was always, and all of a sudden, he got really nervous, and he just kept saying things, and I finally went, I said, do you think that's funny, what you just pitched? And he's like, no. <laughs> and I was like, don't pitch it, wait till you hear the funny thing, and uh, it's. Well, comedy uh, eats so many ideas, yeah. you know? And you can get lost in the thicket. But one, one good place to start is just telling personal stories. If there's something like about your day or your week that's really bothering you, share it. You never know what it can spark, and at least you're saying something that's not shitting on someone else's stuff. Yeah. And as she was saying, find a writing partner. Like in comedy, like Alex is the best writer in town. I just coast. A lot of days I barely talk. I'm thinking about other stuff. I'm like, this guy's so funny and smart. I just listen. I'm like, he's got this pitch. I'm just going to chill back and I'll come up with a joke. And like, Tim, you're laughing. I swear he's great. It's not true, but it makes it easier. I have one little thing to that, which is just not really about a writer's room, but because you said, what do you do to get out of your funk and keep going? And for me, because I think that's a very familiar thing, I think it's a struggle. I, writing is a struggle sometimes. And for me, I, I've never successfully gotten out of the funk and then kept going. I've always just kept going. And then eventually the funk goes away. Yeah, I'm always suspicious of people who love writing. Oh. <laughs> who, who talk about it like it's fun. You know, what, I, I actually I'm, think though what you said, having a partner, that does make that, it fun. Oh, yeah. All right, I we have a lot of we have a lot of fun. For, yeah, Marty. One time I was um, on a panel with um, Mike White, and he talked about for him just to be the naysayer that he only writes when he is so full of the idea that it is like a joyful thing to get it out of him and that he loves writing. And I just have to say, Joss and I sometimes are like, you like it, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah I like it too. I mean, I don't always like it. There's parts of it that are the grunts part and there's those lost days of the soul. But the truth is, especially what you were saying, like I, for years I, there were times when I had to write through uncertainty and, and write through the voices and all that stuff. Um, but there are so many days when I'm just like, why do I, why do I go on guilt.com so much avoiding this? Or, you know, 538, when, when I get in there, um, I lose myself and it's so joyful. So I just, I feel like we don't speak to that enough. It is hard, but it also, we wouldn't be doing it, I don't think, if there wasn't a part of it that just filled us up and, and you know, it's a, it's a tough business, but, and, and you, you're right, like you, you keep going, but also I, I'm a, I, I have a hard time when I'm not actually putting words on the page, but I think there's a real value sometimes in going and watching a movie or, you know, I always think, well, I'm being lazy, but the truth is exposing yourself to other art, to other ideas sometimes will kick you into high gear again. So that's also something I do. Uh, Bob, I, I have a non sequitur answer. Sure. Yeah. Uh, years ago, uh, there was a book being written on writing teams. And these people came over to, it was two authors, they came over to our office and they interviewed us just for hours. 
And it, and it just, it wouldn't end. And we were just kind of getting punchy and tired and restless. And they just kept asking questions and, the ta- and they're changing the tapes. And, and then they said, what do you do when you get writer's block? What do you do? And I just finally said, we take a shower together. <laughs> he loofahs my back. Uh, I, 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 I was, was just, clearly joking. I was just being sarcastic. A bit of a, can we just wrap this up? They put it in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a book called Screen Partners and the chapter about writer's it's block. In there. It's like, Scott and, Alexander. And how many weddings? He have an unusual way of breaking writer's block. <laughs> How many weddings have come from that? <laughs> you go Thank ahead you so here. Much. Oh, hi. Uh, this is a question for mostly the Americans and OJ, but maybe everyone. Um, it's about research. Um, do you do you ever when you're talking about like the KGB files, the massive files, and with OJ, all of the books that were written on it? Do you get overwhelmed? How do you deal with it? And really, the question is: Do you ever feel like you have to? be beholden to what you know as a kind of a narrative reality? Uh, like it's something that happened in reality or do you, do you feel like you have permission to, to make it a better story? I mean, we're extremely beholden. It makes the first drafts take forever because we, we have so much research and so many notebooks and we'll say, oh, you know what? Um, uh, we should do that thing where Marsha where Marsha called up that, that detective. Oh God! Wait, wait. Which which book was that in? And then suddenly we're and we're and we're yelling to our assistant and we're, and we're trying to find stuff and, and and we're trying to get it right. And 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 so the first drafts take forever. Once you have that first printout, you are liberated because then <laughs> then you can just edit it and rewrite it. And punch it up. Then you're almost trying not to look it up the facts anymore. Yeah. I mean, then, the, then the notebook gets locked away. I mean, we do so much research on our on our various pieces that some, at some point you have to make a decision like, all right, are we just researching more, or delaying the writing? And and so we sometimes will take you know six months on the research and just an equal amount of time on the writing. So it's it it uh, it's the research is for us. We want to get we want to get it right, but we also are aware that we're taking usually someone's life and turning it into two hours, and we're taking that. It's all about a mission. It's all about sharpening. It's all about you having one thing stand for many things. And then we unfortunately discovered that there was this crazy person who had a website called walraven.org who had uploaded the entire trial. Every hearing, everything. And uh, what's weird is we, actually, we found an online interview with the guy who did the site saying, so you must have been obsessed with the trial, right? He says, no. <laughs> I, I just had a lot of free time in 1994. <laughs> but, but, but it became this burden because anytime we were thinking about something, we could go, oh, fuck, well, okay, someone, someone go to Walraven and let's start like searching and we'll find that one day and see what exactly Darden said that, and it would just kill hours. But that's the whole art of it all, is that, is that something, say, like, uh, you know, the DNA testimony, which went on for weeks, and you've got to figure out how to take the truth, take what people remember, take the highlights of that, but turn it into a four-minute scene that also has the drama with all the lawyers and everything else going on in it, but, you know, conveys what all that meant. Okay, let's go here to one more question. 
one more question. All right. Uh, I have a weird connection to each of you. I was on O.J. Simpson's story. I passed around the verdict, and I broke up with my girlfriend because of an episode of Veep, and I was friends <laughs> with a guy that I hated because he had HBO just so I could watch Tenacious D. Mr. Show. But my question is uh, about, a, uh, about uh, female voice in, in writing, which is difficult for me as a white male, and where it started when you were writing and how it's evolved and where it's at now with the, like things like Amy Schumer and, the, and all these amazing female-driven characters and writers. I mean, uh, um, I think that, you know, we've talked about this, that, um, you know, I have, um, I'm super lucky I have a bunch of things going on right now, and, and every single one of those shows I don't think I could have sold five years ago. And each one of them has an incredibly flawed female character at the center of it. Um, and I just think that as TV's expanded, um, it's just opened the door for a lot more specific sort of niche. You know, it's funny that girls are really niche, ladies are niche. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, it's just an amazing time in television. Um, and, but I do think that shows like Buffy and, um, you know, My So-Called Life and, um, and Freaks and Geeks, and, you know, there have been a lot of great male writers who have, you know, have written some great female characters. And it's a, it's a tricky thing. It shouldn't be the domain of, of one, you know, gender at all, and it, and it isn't. Um, I just think writing authentically, what's great about the stories that... Sarah and I are getting to tell, you know, we got to tell on Unreal and the, and the things that I'm working on now is that, you know, you approach them as people. Um, and in the case of um, Quinn and um, Rachel, I think that, you know, obviously they were dealing with issues related to gender, but, um, but in the way they did their job and everything, I don't think we ever really thought of them as women. We just wrote our, what we did in our jobs and how, you know, how that works. So it's pretty cool. And I, I had a funny situation happen, which was that when I turned in my first outline, um, they had to have an intervention with me about the male characters because they were so underdeveloped. <laughs> And, um, and I was like, but he's like an under, he looks like an underwear model and he can kill things with his hands. Like that's like, and, and everybody else had like, she was born then and she had this really weird thing about her mom, like just intricate backstories for every character. And I really had to check in with myself and realize that like for me, as I go through the world, when I walk into a room full of people and I meet women, I could tell you a fleck in her eye, everything she was wearing, whether or not she likes dogs, every conversation I had with her. And in all honesty, men sort of look like blurs. So I, um, I actually asked, I asked my girlfriend at the time, um, she was a DP, and I asked her if she could um, help me hang out with some guys, because she hangs out with guys a lot. And she was like, why? Because also, as a lesbian, you end up at like all women parties all the time. So um, I just didn't know any guys. So, uh, so I said, can I hang out with some of your friends? And she was like, that's a little weird for me. Um, but and she was like, what do you want to do? I was like, I just want to be like, so you guys have feelings, right? Like, how does, um, like, at the end of the day, you're like, things happen and I feel the way or something. I, I literally didn't know how to fucking write a man. So um, we have a joke now in the Unreal Writers Room, we were joking about it today, that we really try and support our male writers and make sure they get heard. Like we like, like, like Alex, that was a great idea. Like we really just make sure that they get heard um, and that, and that I, we very graciously ask for the male point of view. So um, it, was like, it was like this really sort of just, again, Marty said authentic, but also accidental thing, which is that we just were writing women that go to work and it, we really didn't think it was noteworthy and it's sort of become this big thing. But it's, um, but yeah, so we have to work hard to represent men and we're really trying to represent you guys. So <laughs> do the best, we'll do the best we can. Can I just I say also that just in general, there needs to be way more diversity in writers' rooms. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. it's not just about men and women. 
I mean, I, 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 you know, I wrote on, I wrote on Kim Peel, and and I was very, I was nervous about it because I'm writing, you know, I'm, I'm some, this white guy, um, and the, the, and the, the, my two answers for how to deal with writing for people who aren't me are one. Really aim for the common humanity. Try to you know focus, but then two like don't be the <laughs> you know don't be the just one white guy writing. Of, uh, you know like I I wrote Keanu with Jordan Peele and I would not have written that on my own. The best movie of the year, by the way. Oh, thank you. Movie. you know I think How did you I, feel I writing just... a cat. Did you need to have a cat consultant? Yeah, well yeah. I have very close relationships with uh, two cats, oh, so okay. it was it made it easier. At, at the time we wrote uh, Mr. Show, I felt it was probably the most diverse writing staff because there was no one from Harvard. Um, <laughs> and it was still all guys. When I first started out um, doing improv and stuff, I, I found that there weren't a lot of women even trying to be in these. I'd take classes, and it'd be like 30 guys mm. and two women. And they would sometimes say, well, let's form an improv group. We'll get the five best guys and you two. And, and sometimes I think you, you ended up having women that maybe weren't quite ready to be put up in the front. And, and then, you know, as you went through this, you would see, oh, my God, there was a girl who's actually really good. And, but now I, I've just recently started taking classes at UCB. And it's still, it's still the same way. I would say it's a little bit more now. There's like, out of 20, there'll be four girls. But because they have so many, and you know, you go to UCB shows, and you know, the women are really strong. And I think early on in comedy, you know, Joan Rivers was great, but she was sort of doing a guy's act. Um, but now more women are doing specifically female comedy. I, I think it's just snowballing and it's becoming a lot more, you know, prevalent. As, as dudes who write for a show about, a, with a female lead, uh, I would say you treat every character as a unique set of agendas and fears and the, the gender doesn't even factor into it. The second part is that you will never win because at some point you'll get called out on not being able to write for women no matter what. I remember we, we, we directed a movie with an actress named Leslie Bibb whose favorite epithet was shitballs. She would say shitballs all the time and so we wrote a pilot where a woman said shitballs and a woman executive just looked at us and said okay and they, they said we might need to have like a woman oversee us because no woman would ever say shitballs. And when we told her didn't believe us. So it can be done, that. but you will not be trusted to do it. <laughs> let's end there up are tons balls. of women who'd want to write with you, so yeah. write, write with them. So let's hear it for these great Emmy-nominated writers. Thank you. Wonderful work. Amazing stuff.